come once more to a consideration of the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8 and verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. I say we come back to these words once more because we've, as you remember, most of you have been considering them a number of Friday evenings together. We've uh, considered them as they are a very vital statement on this whole question of the New Testament teaching concerning sanctification. In all the discussion about the ways of sanctification, these verses are quite crucial. They're neglected, of course, and they're ignored. Theories which are uh, false to the New Testament teaching never refer to them. And it is because they neglect them that they are not scriptural theories of sanctification. But here they are in the 8th of Romans, and therefore are of extreme significance. We've been looking at them in that way, dealing with objections and trying to answer the points of difficulty. But having done that, we now are left with this practical question. Having seen that sanctification is something in which a man himself plays a part, that he doesn't just admit that he's absolutely hopeless and hand it all over to the risen Lord to do it for him, having seen that he is called upon to do something through the Spirit which is in him, we now proceed to consider what it is exactly that he has to do. And the exhortation, the injunction is this. If ye, through the Spirit, mortify or do mortify the deeds of the body. The Christian is called upon, therefore, to mortify the deeds of his body. Now, we first of all must deal with the word body, because it does actually mean our physical body, our physical frame. It means that in exactly the same way as it did in the 10th verse. It isn't flesh. We are dealing with the body. It shouldn't be interpreted as flesh. Even the great Dr. John Owen at this point goes astray and deals with it as the flesh and not as the body. But the apostle, who's talked so much about the flesh, here quite deliberately talks about the body. And he means the body, as I say he does in verses 10 and 11 and as he did in the 12th verse of the 6th chapter. And it means, therefore, I say this, physical body of ours in which sin still remains, but which is one day going to be raised incorruptible and be glorified and become like the glorified body of our blessed Lord and Savior himself. Now, let's be clear about this once more because it's so liable to misunderstanding. The teaching is not that the human body is inherently sinful or that matter is inherently sinful. There have been heretics who've taught that. That is not what the New Testament teaches at all. The New Testament teaches that man was made perfect, body, soul, and spirit. It's wrong to say that matter always has been evil, and that therefore the body has always been evil. No, there was a time when the body was perfect. No sin in it at all. But when men fell, when men sinned, the whole of him fell. 
he became sinful altogether, body, mind, and spirit. But we've seen that in the new birth, that man in a spiritual sense is already delivered. He has this new life. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Yes, but the body still is dead because of sin. Now that is the teaching. In other words, that though a man is regenerated, sin still remains in his mortal dying body. Hence the problem of living the Christian life. Hence the, the fight and the struggle against sin as long as we are left in this world. In other words, the body still is the seat and the instrument of sin and corruption. The body is the seat of the sin and the corruption that still remain in us. Our bodies are not yet delivered. They're going to be. But so far, the sin remains there. Now, the apostle, of course, as I indicated to you in the many verses that I quoted a fortnight ago, he makes this quite clear. In 1 Corinthians 9:27, he says again, I keep under my body. Of course. And that's why he does keep it under. The position is this. The body prompts us to evil deeds. It isn't that the instincts of the body are in and of themselves sinful. They're not. The instincts are natural, they are normal, and they're not sinful. But because there is this residual sin within us, it is always trying to turn the natural instincts into something that's wrong. Inordinate affection. It tries to exaggerate them, tries to make us eat too much, tries to make us drink too much, tries to make us indulge the other instincts too much. It becomes inordinate. Not that the thing is wrong in and of itself, but that this sinful principle constantly is trying to turn what is normal and natural into something that is sinful. In other words, it is the pushing of things too far, or to look at it another way around, it is to hinder us in the process of discipline and self-control to which we are so constantly called in the pages of the scripture. That is what sin remaining in the body tends to do. That, have, that is what he means by these deeds of the body. It is trying, I say, to turn the natural and the normal into something sinful and evil. Very well, and that's the, the meaning of the term body. Mortify rarely explains itself. To mortify is to deaden, is to put to death, is to render inoperative, to make extinct. All those expressions convey the meaning of the word to mortify. And the exhortation is therefore that we must mortify. We are called upon to mortify the deeds of the body. This is addressed to all Christian people. This is the essence of New Testament sanctification. It is not, I repeat again, to say that we are absolutely hopeless, that we can do nothing, to give up every fight and endeavor and hand it all over to the risen Lord. No, we, you and I, are exhorted to mortify the deeds of the body. Now then, the question is, how is this to be done? And here we divide the matter inevitably this way. First of all, false ways, wrong ways of dealing with this question of mortification of the deeds of the body. To save time, I can sum up the wrong ways 
in two main headings. The first is the Roman Catholic method. The Roman Catholic method, of course, is the way of monasticism. That is it in its essence. It argues like this, you see, that while you're living and going about your business in this world, you're up against the world and the flesh and the devil, and they'll get you down. Therefore, if you want to be what they call a spiritual, they divide Christians up into those who are spiritual and the ordinary, the laity. If you want to become a spiritual, well, you go out to the world and you enter a monastery, you take certain vows, you renounce the world, you get away from it so that you can devote yourself entirely to the living of the Christian life. You give up comforts and money and various other things and there they say that you will be able to mortify the body. Well, of course, that is the tragic fallacy. It was that fallacy that uh, Luther discovered, and that was what led to the Protestant Reformation, in a sense. He just discovered that particular fallacy. You can do all that and still find that the fight is as hot and as strong as it ever was. It isn't, you don't escape by going out of the world. And, of course, they don't even stop at that. They do various things to the body. Putting on camel hair shirts. Wearing articles of clothing that will deliberately hurt and deny and irritate the body. Everything you can to despise and to abuse the body. They used to indulge at one time in what were called flagellations. They used to literally strike themselves and hurt themselves and almost mutilate the body. Anything to keep it down. Anything to crush it as it were. And then they would indulge in very rigorous systems of fasting. The wise people amongst you who are reading these journals of George Whitfield at the present time that have been recently reprinted will have discovered quite early in that book that Whitfield, before his eyes were opened, and while he was still trying to save himself, did a great deal of that. He nearly killed himself. I have no doubt at all that Whitfield undermined his health for the whole of his life by excessive fasting. And, of course, that whole school of early Methodists, they all tended to do the same thing. Whitfield, being a particularly honest man, did it with an unusual thoroughness. But he found that it was all quite useless. But that's the notion, that's the idea. That you must, as it were, starve the body, anything you can, to take the life and the kick out of it. And if only you do that, then it won't trouble you in this matter of sinning. Well, the answer is, as I've already suggested, the people who've tried that most thoroughly are the ones who are most eloquent in saying that it doesn't do it, it doesn't succeed. Men who've tried all that, such as Luther and Whitfield and the rest, came to see that that was essential error, and it's wrong at any point in the Christian life. That is not what the Apostle means in the words that we're looking at together. My second heading would be uh, illegalism. All that, of course, I've been talking about is, in a sense, legalism also. But as you can have legalism in people who are not Roman Catholics, I have to put it under a separate heading. Legalism, or if you prefer another term for it, false Puritanism. I say false Puritanism because it is really a denial of the teaching of Puritanism. Some of us have known a great deal about this. I was brought up in this kind of atmosphere myself. They didn't teach us the Puritan doctrines, but they did teach this Puritan practice without giving us the doctrine, without giving us the reason, without giving us the truth. 
there was a, a kind of life imposed upon us with great rigor. And uh, it was the great characteristic, of course, of the end of the last century and the very early part of this present century. So they introduced you to a kind of life in which you scorned delights and lived laborious days. It was a joyless religion. It was a legalism. It was a tyranny. There was no happiness. There was no joy. There was no exultation. It was a religion of fear, in a sense. It was a religion that led to morbidity and introspection, and very often to despair. But above everything else, I say, it was nothing but just sheer legalism. A system of living, a code of ethics, a way of morality, imposed upon people in the wrong way. Well, now, there are the false ways of trying uh, to mortify the deeds of the body. And, of course, it is because of all that that the theories with which we've been dealing with already tended to come in. In spite of all I've said about the perfectionists and those who believe in the principle of counteraction, as they call it, let me say this for them. They, at any rate, could see that the Roman Catholic way was wrong and that this false Puritanism was wrong. They saw that very clearly. They saw that that was a miserable sort of Christianity, a miserable kind of life. And they said, that isn't right. And they, there, of course, they were absolutely right, 100% right. But it was in reacting against that that they adopted this other theory, which I'm suggesting is more psychological than spiritual. Their dislike of the wrong teaching was perfectly all right, but then it drove them to an equally wrong teaching. That's not the way the apostle tells us to mortify the deeds of the body. Well, what is the true way? Well, here it is. If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, through the Spirit or by the Spirit. I must repeat this again. You see, you're not to hand it over to the risen Lord. You, through the Spirit, are to do this yourself. And the Spirit is mentioned particularly, of course. Why? Well, this is the particular and peculiar mark of Christianity. This is what differentiates Christianity from morality. This is what differentiates Christianity from that legalism and that false puritanism, the spirit, through the spirit. It means this. The Holy Spirit, as we've seen abundantly, the apostle has gone on repeating it, the Holy Spirit is in us as Christians. You can't be a Christian without him. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God is in you. And he's working in you, and he enables us. He gives us strength, he gives us power. That's why he's in us. He's in order to do that. He is mediating this great salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has worked out for us. He's applying it to us. It's work being worked out in us and through us. So that the Christian must never complain of want of ability and power. For a Christian to say, I can't do it, is utterly and entirely wrong. No Christian must ever say, I've got no power, I've got no strength. A man who's got the Holy Spirit residing in him must never utter such an expression. It is a denial of the truth concerning himself. What is the Christian? Well, the Apostle John, you remember, in the 16th verse of the first chapter of his Gospel, puts it like this. Of his fullness have we received... And grace for grace 
of grace upon grace, of his fullness, have we received. Yes, we are branches in the vine. We must never say we've got no power. People mustn't come as they do come and say, I can't do it. The thing's too much for me. It's too strong. The temptation is too great. A Christian must never speak like that. He's got the Spirit of God in him, and therefore he's got power in him. Or listen to John in his first epistle, putting it in the fourth chapter, again in verse 6. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We know the devil is in the world and he's mighty in power. Yes, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Very well, here then are things that we've got to realize. And there are many other quotations which we've already been considering. Just take that other one again in that first epistle of John. It's such an important one in that fifth chapter in verses 18 and 19. He says, we know that whosoever is born of God doth not keep on committing sin. That's the meaning of sinneth not. It's this present continuous tense. We know that whosoever is born of God does not keep on sinning. Why not? But he that is begotten of God, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, keepeth him. And that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, this is a tremendous statement. This, he says, is the truth about every Christian. That the man who is a Christian does not go on living in sin. Why? Well, because Christ is living in him, and that evil one can't touch him. Not only does he not control him, he can't even touch him. He doesn't come under the power of the evil one. And then to rub it right home, he says in verse 19, we know that we are of God. But as for the world, the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's the world. The world is in the arms and in the bosom of the evil one. He controls it absolutely. He's got the world and the man who belongs to the world entirely in his grip and under his control. And that man is an absolutely helpless victim. It's no use asking him to modify the deeds of the body. He can't do it. He's in the grip of the devil. But the Christian isn't. The Christian is of God. And that evil one can't even touch him. He can shout at him, as I say, and frighten him, but he can't touch him. Leave alone can he control him. Now, here are statements about the Christian. And you and I, you see, have got to realize these things. And as we realize that the Spirit is in us, we will realize these things. So that we are called upon then to use and to exercise the power that is in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's precisely what the Apostle is arguing about here. He says, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that does dwell in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you, through that spirit that is, is resident in you, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Very well. Exercise the power that is in you through the spirit. The spirit is power, and he is dwelling in you. Exercise the power that is in you. That's exactly what he's saying. But come, let me break it up a bit. How do we do that in practice? Well, now here, I believe the most convenient division is to divide it up into general and particular. 
Let's see how this works out in general. And what I mean by that is this, that there are certain things we've got to realize. One is we've got to understand our position spiritually. The Apostle has been reminding us of all that, and I've just been reminding you of it in quoting these verses. But you know, this is the most important thing in many ways. Our troubles are due to the fact that we don't realize and don't remember who we are and what we are as Christians. People come and say, oh, I've got no power, I can't do this or that. Now, the thing to really we need to be told is this, you know, not that we're absolutely hopeless and we must hand it over. This is what we must be told, what we were told in that first chapter of Second Peter in verses 2 to 4. Listen to him again. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Then listen. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We've been given all that. Everything that pertains to life and godliness has already been given us through the knowledge of him that hath called us by his glory and virtue. Then whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by means of these exceeding great and precious promises you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And yet people come and moan and complain and say, I can't do it, I've got no strength. Look here, the answer to you is this. All things that pertain to life and godliness have been given you. Stop moaning and grumbling and complaining. Get up and use what's in you. If you're a Christian, the power is in you by the Holy Spirit. You are not hopeless. All things that pertain to life and godliness have already been given you. Then, uh, let's go back again to him, because the apostle, you remember, has a very interesting and important negative there. In the ninth verse of that same first chapter of this first epistle of his, he says, he that lacketh these things, in other words, the man who doesn't do the things that he's been exhorting him to do, when he says, beside all this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, etc., he says, he that lacketh these things is blind, and he can't see afar off. He's short-sighted, and he has forgotten that he was purged from his, own, his old sins. You know, the trouble with this other man, says Peter, is that he... He's blind. He can't see afar off. He hasn't got a true view of the Christian life. And he's forgotten that he has been purged from his old sins. He's talking as if he were still unregenerate. He says, I can't. I'm, it's too much for me. And the answer is he doesn't realize the truth about himself. He needs to be shaken. He needs to have his eyes opened. He's blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he's been purged from his old sins. Very well, we've got to realize that. And furthermore, we've got to realize this, that uh, if we are guilty of sin, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God that was in us. You see, people talk about their own failure, and they say, now if only I could get rid of this sin, can't you tell me of some meetings that are going to be held somewhere where I can be delivered, this thing will be taken out of me, or it will all be done for me. 
My dear friend, what you need to be told is this, that every time you sin, it isn't so much that you sin and become miserable. That isn't what matters. What matters is that you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God that is dwelling in your body. How often do you think about that? I find that when people come to talk to me, they're always talking about themselves. My failure. I'm falling to this sin. This thing's get... all. The talk is entirely about themselves. I still have to have somebody coming to me and say, you know, my greatest trouble is that I am grieving the Holy Spirit of God. I don't remember anybody coming to say that to me. And of course, it's obvious why they don't. It's obvious why I've never been told that in my pastoral experience. Why is it obvious for this reason? The man who realizes that the main trouble about sin is that it means that he is grieving the Holy Spirit stops doing it at once. That's why he doesn't come to me. The moment a man sees that, he deals with it. It isn't what happens to him. He's grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And the moment a man realizes that, he takes action. And then another thing that's very important under this general heading is this. Always keep the ultimate goal in sight. Oh, Peter's got this very perfectly, hasn't he? For so, he says, if you do these things, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do you mean? Well, he means this, you see. He says, if you do these things that I'm exhorting you to do. You know, he says, your death, when it comes, will be very wonderful. You won't just somehow enter into the kingdom of God. You'll have an abundant entry. It'll be a triumphant procession. The gates will be opened and there'll be great rejoicing. A notable personage is entering. A conqueror is coming in. An abundant entry shall be administered unto you. He's not talking about salvation there. He's talking about our final glorification the entry into the everlasting habitation. So we must keep our eye on the goal. The trouble is we are always looking at ourselves and at this world. If we only thought of ourselves more and more as pilgrims of eternity, which is what we are, you know, Paul has been putting it to us here in the 11th verse. Think of the day when he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Keep your eye on that, he says. Keep your eye on the goal. And Peter's saying exactly the same thing. And John says the same thing. Beloved, now are we the, the, the sons of God? We know not yet what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. Every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Christian people, this is the cause of our trouble. We will live to this world and in time. We will persist in forgetting that we are only pilgrims and strangers here. That we belong to heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's the place we belong to. And we are going there. If only we had that in the forefront of our minds, this problem would very easily be solved. Work it out in human analogies. Family loyalty is a great help in life, isn't it? You might do a thing. You suddenly remember who you are. 
You say, I can't let down my family. I can't disgrace the name, so you don't do it. If you didn't belong to the family, you do it. Very well. Multiply that by infinity. You belong to the family of heaven. That's where we belong. And then my last, my fourth point under this general heading is this. As Peter puts it again in his own direct and blunt and simple manner in verse 10 in that first chapter of his second epistle. Wherefore the rather brethren, he says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now that's what you want, isn't it? You want to live a life in which you don't fall. Very well, says Peter. If you do these things, you shall never fall. You've got to do them. He's been telling them what they are. I'll tell you what they are in a moment. If you do these things, you shall never fall. So if you don't want to fall, if that's your problem, well, says the apostle, keep on doing these things. Or as this Apostle Paul puts it in writing to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Very well, there it is in general. Let me come to the particular. Now, here again, I've got to have a division. I'm doing this for your convenience, not that I like these divisions and subdivisions. I think it's helpful. We're dealing with very practical things tonight. These things have got to be done one by one. So having, through the Spirit and with a Spirit-enlightened mind, seen these general considerations and always holding them in our minds, what do we have to do in particular? Be thoroughly practical. Here I divide it into first, direct or negative. And the second will be indirect or positive. But first of all, direct or negative. What have I got to do here? One, abstain from sin. It's as simple as that and as direct as that. Dearly beloved, says Peter again in his first epistle, second chapter, verse 11. Dearly beloved. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now that's as plain as a thing could be, isn't it? There's no talk there, you see, of being absolutely hopeless and giving up all struggle and handing it all over to the risen Lord. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from, stop doing it. Stop it at once, never do it again. Abstain from. You've got to be a total abstainer from these sins, these fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Now it's no use coming, I say, and moaning and saying, I'm weak and I can't and temptation is powerful. The answer of the New Testament is, stop it. You don't need a hospital and treatment. You need to pull yourself together. Realize who you are as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from. You have no business to touch such things. The New Testament's full of that. Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5. Let him that stole, steal no more. Let no filthy communication proceed out of your mouth. None of this foolish talking nor jesting. Don't do it. Abstain. It's as simple as that and as practical as that. Stop doing it. Secondly, to quote the Apostle again in Ephesians 5, 11 and 12, 
have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Now, you notice what he says, have no fellowship with them. You must not only abstain from things, have no fellowship with people who do that and do nothing else. That's their mode of life. Have no fellowship with them, but reprove them. I haven't time to work this out. Those who come here Sunday morning may remember we've already done that. And you need wisdom to do it. But the ruling principle is, don't have your fellowship with people like that. It's no good to you. It'll do harm to you. The Apostle Peter again has this in his first epistle in chapter 3, in verses 10 and 11. Listen to him. He says, he that will, live, that will love life and see good days. What's he got to do? What's a man got to do who wants to live a full and a happy life, who loves life and would see good days? Let him admit that he's absolutely hopeless and handed all over to the risen Lord. No, no. He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile, let him eschew evil, shy away from it like a frightened horse. That's what eschew means. You, you know, don't know anything about horses, but if you've ever ridden a horse... And suddenly the horse sees a bit of white paper rustling by the... And he shies away from it. That's what you've got to do with sin, says the apostle. If you want to live life and to, li and to live good days, oh, control your tongue. Refrain from speaking evil and your lips that they speak guile. Eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Well, there it is. Have no fellowship with evil. Shy away from it. Keep as far away from it as you can. The third thing is, is this. Keep under. 1 Corinthians 9.27 Keep under. I keep under my body. Every man who strives as the apostle for master is in the race. He undergoes discipline. You read about people going in for these great athletics and you read that they're very careful about their diets. They stop smoking while they're doing this. They don't drink when they're doing this. How careful they are. Well, they want to win the prize, you see. Well, if they do that, says Paul, for that perishable crown of theirs, how much more so should we do so? So I do, says Paul, I keep under my body. I pummel it. I hit it. It's a boxing metaphor. He knocks it and he wants to keep it down. I keep under. And you know the body's got to be kept under. How do you do that? Well, there's a hint in our Lord's words in Luke 21, 34, it seems to me. Listen to him. He says, and take heed to yourselves. He's talking to his followers. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this world, and so that day come upon you unawares. Don't eat too much. Don't drink too much. Don't do anything too much. Now, this is most important. That's the way to keep under your body. Yes, take sufficient food. Take the right food. But don't eat too much. Don't be guilty of surfeiting. You know, the body is ready to clutch at any opportunity because of this sin that remains in it. And if a man overindulges his body in food or drink or anything else, he'll find it more, more and more difficult to live this sanctified Christian life and to mortify the deeds of the body. Very well then, avoid all that. 
Pay attention even to your diet and to the regular, disciplined, ordered life in every respect. Don't eat too much, don't drink too much, don't sleep too much, do none of these things too much. Otherwise your body will become lethargic and heavy and dull and lifeless and there's such an intimate connection between the body and the mind and the spirit you'll find greater trouble in your spiritual warfare. Keep it under. Then take another one, which is the fourth. Another great word by this Apostle Paul and in the epistle to the Romans this time. It's the last verse, 14th verse in the 13th chapter. Put ye on, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Don't make any provision. If you want to modify the deeds of the body, well, don't make any provision for the flesh. What does he mean by that? Well, the very good way of looking at that is to go straight back to the book of Psalms. And there you will find it in a most excellent manner, even in the very first Psalm. Here is the prescription. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Yes, but not only that. Nor standeth in the way of sinners. If you want to live this godly life and mortify the deeds of your body, don't spend your time standing on the street corners. Because if you do, you know you're going down. You're going to fall into sin. If you stand where sin is likely to be passing by, don't be surprised if you go home miserable and unhappy because you're fallen again. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Still less must you sit in the seat of the scornful. If you go and do things like that, it's not surprising that you fall. If you know people have a bad influence over you, avoid them. Keep clear of them. You say, ah, but I'm going, I mix with them in order that I may help them, and yet I find every time they lead me to sin. Well, very well, then you're not in a position to help them. Avoid them altogether until you're strong enough to mix with them without falling. Keep clear of them. Make no provision for the flesh. You will read in the Old Testament, the wise man says in his book of Proverbs, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Look straight ahead, he says. Don't look to the right or the left. Watch your wandering eyes. You know, they seem to move almost automatically, don't they? And they look for things that entice them and incite them into sin. Make a covenant with your eyes. Job says it. I made a covenant with mine eyes. I realized it was dangerous to... Go around the world looking, I saw, and before I knew where I was, I'd gone down. Very well, this is, if it was important in the days of Job, how much more so today? When you've got newspapers such as we have at the present time. If ever men needed to make covenants with their eyes, it's now. Be careful what you read, my friend. There are certain things, if you read them, they'll do harm to you. Newspapers, books. Journals, entertainments, pictures. I don't care what it is. Anything that you find does harm to you and lures your resistance. Avoid it. Don't look at it. Have nothing to do with it. It's got to be done in practice. Ah, oh, but you say, I thought Christianity delivered you from all that. I know you did. That's what people always want, isn't it? That's why they go rushing after the cults, you see. They think that Christianity means this. You take your ticket, you take your seat in the celestial railway, you never do another thing, and you're wafted to heaven without any further troubles. My dear friends, that's not Christianity. That's a fairy tale. That's the cult's teaching. Here you're told to mortify the deeds of the body. 
Make no provision for the flesh. Thank God for a virile gospel. Thank God for a gospel that tells us that we are now responsible beings in Christ and calls upon us to act in this way. So make no provision for the flesh. For the flesh. The fifth point, and this is a very important one, deal with the first motions and movements of sin and temptation within you. Deal with it the moment it appears. If you don't, you're undone. You'll go down. Now, why do I say this? Well, my reason for saying this is what we read in the epistle of James in the first chapter, verses 14 and 15. James says in verse 13, Let no man say when, I am, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Then, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then here's the process. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Yes, but the first movement is a sort of uh, enticement. The movement of lust and enticement. That's the point to deal with it. If you don't deal with it there, it'll beat you. Nip it in the bud. Deal with it at once. Never let it get even a moment's foothold. A very important point. Don't accept it at all. If you say, ah, oh, well, I'm not going to do the thing, uh, but you accept it in your mind and you begin to fondle it, you entertain it and your imagination, and you've sinned, my friend. According to Christ, you've sinned. You needn't commit the act. To do it in your mind is quite enough. To do it in your heart is sin in the sight of God who knows all about us and reads even what happens in the heart and the imagination. Nip it in the bud, therefore have no dealings with it. Stop it at once at the first movement before this wretched process that is described by James begins to take place. But remember this. And you can make this your next point if you like. That that doesn't mean repression. Because if you merely repress a temptation or this first motion of sin within you, it'll only come up probably still more strongly. To that extent, I agree with the modern psychology. Repression is always bad. Well, what you do then, says someone, well, this is how you do it. When you feel that first motion of sin, just pull yourself up and say, of course I'm not having any dealings with this at all. Why not? Well, expose the thing. Say, this is the devil. This is the old life under the flesh. This is the world, this is hell, this is evil, this is vileness, this is the thing that drove men out of paradise. Pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is. And then you've really dealt with it. You mustn't just be in a spirit of fear uh, and in a timorous manner sort of push it back. No, no, bring it out and expose it and analyze it and go for it and denounce it until you hate it. And then my last point under this heading is this. If you should fall into sin, and who doesn't? From the standpoint of mortification of the deeds of the body, this is very important. Don't heal yourself too easily, too quickly. Turn to 2, to two Corinthians 7. And there, read what he tells us about a godly sorrow that worketh unto repentance. Don't heal yourself too quickly, too easily. But again, I say, bring out the thing you've done. Look at it, analyze it, expose it, denounce it, hate it. And denounce yourself. 
But again, you mustn't do that in such a way as to plunge yourself into the depth of depression and despair. You see, we'll always do one of the two things. We're either too light or too deep, as it were. And the Christian manner is the one which is in between the two. You don't heal the affliction of the daughter of your people too lightly, but neither do you cast yourself down into a despair and a gloom and say, it's all hopeless, I've fallen into sin, I'm not a Christian, and you go back into condemnation. That's equally wrong. It's neither of those two. But it is, I say, an honest examination of yourself and what you've done and an utter condemnation of yourself and what you've done. And then it is a realization that as you confess it to God without any excuse whatsoever, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you do it lightly, you'll fall into sin again. If you put yourself down in the pit of depression, well, you'll be so hopeless that you'll fall into more and more sin and you'll be a poor recommendation for the Christian gospel. You'll be in an atmosphere of gloom and of utter failure, and that leads to more failure. Don't do either, but do it in the way which the Spirit always instructs us to do. My last heading here is the indirect or the positive. What do we do here? Well, here I've got some great slogans for you. Listen to this Apostle Paul writing again in his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 16. Verse 13, what does he say about to them? Come into the open, confess that you're an absolute failure, that you can do nothing, give up the struggle, hand it all over to the risen Lord. No, no, listen to this. Watch ye, watch ye. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. What a glorious gospel this is. And what miserable specimens so many of us are. I'm not surprised the masses of the people are outside the church. It's because they see us. Here's Christianity. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Know what it is and stand fast in it. Quit you like men. Be strong. Not a miserable weak weakling moaning and grumbling and complaining and you can't do this and that suffering I say again from the mumps and measles of the soul be a man be strong quit you like men be strong that's Christianity then secondly walk in the spirit Galatians 5.16 walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You see, these two things, as he says, are opposite to one another. As the one goes up, the other goes down. It's inevitable. Like those little weather instruments that some people have, the little men and the little woman, you remember. One is out when it's fine, the other's out when it's wet or cold. They can't be out at the same time. Impossible. And it's exactly like that in the Christian life. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Well, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This is the indirect and the positive way. Build up the Christian, the spiritual man that's in you. Walk your, live your life in the spirit. And then come back again to Peter once more. In that second epistle, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. And beside this, he says, now then, giving all diligence, not handing it all over, giving all diligence, 
add to your faith, the faith you've got, you've got to add something to it. What you add to it? Oh, virtue, which means strength again and discipline. Add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. You must add to your knowledge. You must shake yourself. You must read, you know. You must study your Bible. You must read these books about the Bible. You must apply your mind. You'll never get on anywhere if you haven't knowledge. Well, never in the Christian life will you get on without it. Add, therefore, to your virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. This is discipline and self-control, which you've got to exercise. And to temperance, patience. How we need it with ourselves and with others. And to patience, godliness. Living this life as Christ lived it when he was here in this world. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity or love. Now, we've got to go in for these things. We've got to add them to our faith. Add them one by one. Keep it, giving all diligence. Set yourself to the task and go on doing it, he says. And then, you see, he gives us those wonderful reasons for doing it. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor fruitful, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall, and so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And last of all, we must be positive. I find this is one of the most valuable things of all. Thank God in my own experience and in my experience in helping others, I have found this, I suppose, if I were to choose one thing, as the most valuable of all. Always be positive in your approach to this question of avoiding sin and living the Christian life. People always come and they say, you know, I, if only I can't get rid of this sin. If only I could stop doing this. I can't. I keep on falling. And they keep on talking about themselves and their sin and the whole thing's negative. What I invariably say to them is this. Look here. You know, you're looking at it the wrong way. You've got the wrong ambition. Your ambition and desire should not be negative and merely a desire to get rid of this particular thing that's worrying you and getting you down. You know, what you should really desire is this, is to be a Christian worthy of the name, is to be the sort of Christian of whom the Lord Jesus Christ is proud, is to be a Christian that shall attract other people to him. Why don't you think of it like that? Why must you always be negative and say, if only I got rid of this? Be positive. Desire to be big and great and a man and strong and noble and like Christ himself. View it positively. Well, let me put all that in terms again of the Apostle Peter, the first epistle this time, the second chapter in verses 9 and 10. This is the way we should look at it all. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That's what you are. You're not a miserable failure. You're not absolutely hopeless. No. You are a chosen generation. 
a kingdom of priests and holy nation, a people for God's own peculiar possession. That's what we are as Christians. Well, why should we be so careful to remember this? Well, this is why, you see, we are all that, he says, that ye should show forth his praises who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people. You were only a rabble, a crowd, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know, if only we thought of ourselves like that. If only we realized what we've been made by God in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. If only we realized that we are this chosen generation, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this peculiar people, and that God has made us this. Why? Well, that we should show forth, display his excellencies. His glories, his virtues. That's what we are for in this world. The world, you see, doesn't believe in God. It doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's a Christian? Well, a Christian, according to Peter here, and it's the teaching of the New Testament everywhere, is this. is a man whose main ambition while he's left in this life and in this world is to show forth the glories and the praises of God and of Jesus Christ. How does he do that? Well, by being different, of course. So he goes on to say, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts against which war against the soul, having you a conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they say they speak evil against you, as evil does, they may by you a good works which they shall behold, glorify God. In the day of visitation. And it is to the extent that we realize this truth about ourselves. And that our main business in life should be to testify to the grace and the glory and the love and the majesty of God. It is as we realize that that's our calling and that that's our business. And that we are unlike everybody else in the world. It's to the extent that we realize this. That we shall mortify the deeds of the body. And say, we can't allow this to ruin this marvelous thing to which God has called us. Because when we fall into sin, the terrible thing is not so much that I have failed, or that I have fallen, or that I am miserable, or that I want release, but that I've let God down. And that men and women in the world will know nothing about his praise and his glory, his virtues, his excellences. They'll say, what's it mean to be a Christian? What's in it? They're like us after all. Look at them. Where's the difference? Look at their lives. And they dismiss Christianity and Christ. It is as we realize that we are his representatives. That we are the channels that he has chosen to show forth his own glory, his own excellency, his own power and his own wonder. That we shall, I say, proceed to deal with it. He's put his spirit within us. Christ dwells within us. We've got the power. Well, in the name of God, I say, and for the glory of God and the honor of God, men and women who would be ready to die for your king and country, are you ready to live for the sake of God 
and his kingdom and his glory and his honor. That's the New Testament way of sanctification and of holiness. Not to say that we are no good, but to say that we are so good that we must do it for the sake of our Father, of our Savior, our Christ, the Holy Spirit that is within us, and the kingdom of God and his everlasting glory. Very well. Let us then, through the Spirit in these various ways, mortify the deeds of the body, and thereby make our calling and election sure, have an abundant entry into the everlasting kingdom of God when we die, and live that life fully, which is life indeed. Amen. O Lord our God, we come again unto thee to thank thee and to praise thy name for the glory of this Christian life. O God, have mercy upon us for our blindness and our short-sightedness and inability to see afar off and to realize that thou hast purged us from our old sins. O God, forgive us that if, that if our representation of the Christian life is such that we antagonize others from it or fail to create within them a desire and a longing to be in it and to live it, O oh God, forgive us, have mercy upon us. And by thy Spirit we pray thee, enlighten the eyes of our understanding more and more, enable us to realize what we are by thy grace, and the power that it worketh in us, its exceedingly great power. O oh God, so give us understanding in these things that we shall indeed quit ourselves as men and be strong and stand firmly on the faith and ever live as witnesses to the praise of the glory of thy grace and show forth thine excellencies. O oh Lord, follow us with thy blessing, use us in our several stations in life to show forth thine excellencies. And even through us, O God, extend the confines of thy kingdom and bring many out of darkness into thy most marvelous light. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.